0: So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was good. And we see in that creation, he's a king and creation is his kingdom. Everything does what he says. He establishes a place for him to rule. He then makes humans to be his under kings that rule with him over the creation. He gives them dominion over all of it so that they can have authority and create more things within the creation. The humans are given the land We see them working it, keeping it, and all they had to do was keep depending on God the king and they would continue to have the necessary power to rule over his creation. But then one of the members of creation, a serpent, suggests, well, why don't you just try this gig on your own and you can call the shots as you want them called. So they eat from the tree, which symbolically demonstrated their severance from relying on the king's power. The humans eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which thereby declared, we don't need that king's power. We don't need to serve God. We can be our own gods and our own kings. God lets them have their way. You want to rule the world without me? Let's see how this goes. And so we then see in the next scene, the first kids, one of them kills the other one. We're off to a pretty good start. And then it follows in Genesis 4, his genealogy. His name is Cain. Cain kills Abel, his brother. Cain has descendant after descendant who, yeah, they sure, they they further creation. They do these things. They make swords and music, and they learn how to herd cattle and domesticate animals. But there's also polygamy going on. One of them murders a young boy because he made fun of him. And he says, well, if Cain was protected by God, let me be avenged 70 times 7. Which Jesus later turned on its head and said he should forgive people seventy times seven. And then Adam and Eve have their third kid to replace Abel, who was killed by Cain. His name's Seth. And we learn that when Seth is born, people begin to call upon the name of God. Worship begins to happen. So now we have these the story of two families. Cain's is going downhill. Seth's is struggling to find how to serve God in a corrupt world. And so in Genesis 5, we see the story of Seth's family. Adam begot Seth, and Seth begot uh, Enosh, and Enosh begot Canaan, and Canaan begot Maheliel, and Mahalalel begot Jared, and Jared begot Enoch, and Enoch begot Methuselah, and Methuselah begot Lamech, and Lamech begot Noah. And we see this this list of them who are born and these many years that they live. But at the end of each name, eight times we see this refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. Now, when we talked about Cain's genealogy, it doesn't say that they lived or died. They just kind of existed. But when we follow Seth's line, They lived this many years, fathered this person, and then they died. They lived a whole life. They may not have got the credit for inventing music or learning how to uh, herd cattle and invent the hamburger or how to make equipment out of metals. They may not have gotten any of that civilized credit. They may have lived quiet and not too ordinary lives, but they didn't fear death and they knew how to live and that's what we see in that Genesis 5 genealogy, this, this just packed account of people who died. And you know what? We're going to die. But those who fear death are those who bring fear to people around them. And if you look at history, and there, there's been a, an, an excellent book, a Nobel Prize winning book, about, um, about um, why humans do what they do and because they fear death. And we see that Cain's line, it fears death, it fears loss. And whether we or not we consciously live with the fear of death, it's driving us, it's gnawing at us that well, we have to look younger because we're dying. We have to hurry and accumulate more because we're dying. We need to achieve great things and make a name for ourselves because we're dying. But these did not fear death. And they, we see in Seth's line, they worship God. Well, come by chapter 6, we see, meanwhile, this ugly scene. When man began to multiply on the face of the land. So according to the genealogy in 5, we have about 1,500 years that have passed. It could be more. I'm not really sure if it's a full genealogy, but years have gone by. Man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. Now, the sons of God, note that phrase, the mysterious characters introduced, the sons of God saw the daughters of man, that they were attractive. And they, the sons of God, took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide a man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or the giants were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, they are, or they were, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So these mysterious sons of God are getting together with the daughters of men and they're birthing the Nephilim, the giants who are the mighty men of renown. Okay, verse five. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. (laughs) Every intention, only evil continually. That's triple bad. Humans have put their own chapters into the Bible so that we can find navigation easier, right? So we're presently, we just finished reading a part of Genesis 6. Well, actually, in the original Genesis text, we are reading the second chapter of Genesis. Genesis breaks its chapters with this phrase, the dreaded phrase. This is the generation of, and then you have this genealogy. And we're like, oh my goodness, here we go. But if you ever notice, there's a lot of that in Genesis. There's actually 10 times that we read about a genealogy. And scholars have done the math and realized, well, wait a minute. These are actually the author's inserts for chapter breaks. So that there's 10 movements in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 is an introduction. Hey, here's how everything got here. In the beginning, God created everything. Then you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And you come to the first chapter of Genesis. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Then go to chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. That's now chapter 2. And then you go to chapter 6, verse 9, and we see the third break. These are the generations of Noah. The reason I point this out is because we need to see the units that the author intends us to see. Introduction God made everything, He's a king, creation is His kingdom. Well, chapter one, then, he answers this question What happened then? If God is the king and the earth is His kingdom, what happened? (laughs) So, chapter two, verse four tells us it says, This is the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, Generations is a very uh, straightforward translation. In Hebrew, the concept of of generation or genealogy is actually uh, a sequence of events. So it's not actually a very far step to say this is the story of, insert the name, because a sequence of people is not far from a sequence of events, which is what it would have sounded like in the Hebrew. So when you see this is the generation of the heavens and the earth, you could very legitimately read, this is the story of the heavens and the earth, or this is the order of events of what came after the heavens and the earth. So when Genesis chapter two, verse four says, this is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, it's saying, hey, you realize that it doesn't really look like God is the king and the earth is his creation or the creation is his kingdom. Uh, well, here's the story of what happened to the heavens and the earth that he had made. So what do we see in that chapter? We see the humans in the garden. We see them naming the animals. We see Adam is given a wife called Eve. And then we see a serpent slithering in and then the serpent gets them to disobey god and then the curse comes crashing down and then they have children and Cain one of their children kills the other child Abel and Cain becomes this really monstrous man on the earth and he has these sons and daughters who are not doing too well on the earth either and then the chapter ends with the birth of Seth that's what happened that's why nothing lines up with chapter 1 is because the humans decreated what god created they took it out of order when God put it in order. So now our third chapter, chapter English chapter 5, verse 1, the third section. It's, um, here is the book of the generations of Adam. Or in other words, so here's what became of Adam. Here's the story of Adam. We saw what happened to the earth. Let's see what happens to Adam. Okay, what happens to Adam? He has some decent kids. We see their long genealogy. Some of them were explicitly mentioned as living godly, like Enoch. Enoch walked with God, verse 22. There you go. He walked with God. And then it comes to chapter 6, and this is what we just read. What happened to Adam? Well, part of his race got mingled up with the sons of God. The daughters of men and the sons of God got together, and they had these monstrous children. And things look really bad. So, in that last chapter where we saw what happened to the heavens and the earth, we saw humans rebelled against God. There was a fall. This next chapter we see, okay, Adam's race, well, there was another fall. And we see this version of the fall too, uh, that the humans began to have these unlawful sexual relationships and birthed unnatural creatures. So that we see, once again, the creation is being disordered. This is what is happening when the humans are ruling without God. Things are going to chaos. Um, By the way, this marker, that word generation or genealogy in your text, uh, which we said could also read story. The Hebrew is teledot. T-E-L-E-D-O-T. Teledot. That's... That's the word for it. So we just finished the second teledot. This is what happened to Adam, his genealogy. They began to birth monsters. It's looking bad, just like the other chapter, the first teledot. The second one's looking bad, but the last verse gives us hope. Again, verse eight, six, eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. The last teledot, the humans rebel but God covered them with animal skins. This one, humans are having bad sexual relationships, but there's hope in Noah. He found favor in God's eyes. So both go bad and south, but they end with hope. Um, let's talk about these sons of God. The daughters of men are usually agreed to be just that. Females, women. The sons of God's a little more mysterious. Are they men? We don't generally refer to human men as sons of God. Are they... Is this like some pantheon we don't know about? Like God has babies and there's baby gods? And they're going around doing stuff? Are they angels who left heaven to wreak havoc among human affairs? It's a very popular view. Here's a couple of the ideas. One, um, the sons of God are actually the line of Cain, the bad line And the daughters of men is the line of Seth, the good line. And that they started to intermix, and they shouldn't have intermarried. Problem with this view is, okay, you get metaphorical giants that are like just moral monsters, and they're not really living, right? They're compromised. That, That could work. But the problem is that you're suddenly, without explanation, changing the terminology. There's no explanation that Cain is equated with the sons of God and Seth with the daughters of men. So it just seems like quite a jump in interpretation. Another idea is that the sons of God are angels, angelic beings, possibly fallen ones. Makes sense because in the book of Job, uh, all the angels and even Satan himself is in the presence of God It says that when the sons of God gathered before the throne of God, sons of God seems to be a term for angelic beings. That these are angelic beings who have sexual relationships with real human women. And naturally, if you have a supernatural being with a human being, you're going to get a, a an interesting person (laughs) born out of that. And that uh, the Greek mythology is most popular that we know about, but all mythology, all pagan mythology has demigods and like semi-human and semi-god people. They're a mixture and they are these great heroes in their stories and legends. And that it's very possible that there was a time when people like that did exist. And that these myths come from a fragment of truth way back in the time when demons and humans had sexual relations and had kids. The only problem with this interpretation is what do you do if God is sending a flood to wipe out this problem? What do you do with the, the giants, the Nephilim? Uh, what do you do with them when they show up again in numbers 13, as Israel's about to enter into the promised land? Why doesn't God wipe those out with a flood too? Why are they back? How did that happen again? So that's, that's the downfall of that idea. Um, or this is a more, much more historical approach, is that the sons of God are, uh, well, Jesus, by the way, called himself the son of God. And when Jesus called himself that, everyone already knew who the son of God was, and that what he was saying was a challenge to who the son of God already was. Caesar, the Roman emperor, called himself the son of God. And there was this this tradition that the emperor, when he took the throne, the one that was before him, when he died, he ascended up to the gods and each emperor assumed the place of the son of the gods until he died and became one of the gods so that he was the representative of the gods. We call him the son of God. Jesus is like, I'm the representative of the one true God. I'm the son of God. Here to show you the one true God. Well, that isn't just a New Testament thing. That had been a long line of history that all kings associated themselves as birthed from their pantheon of gods. It's how they got authority people to believe him and listen to him. Like, Hey, I represent the gods here. Don't you dare talk to me that way. Don't come against me. I have authority. And so the religious and political entities married and that's how the Kings held power. Pharaoh was the son of God in the Egyptian world. And so way back in this time, it's possible that the sons of God are Kings or people who claim to be Kings and try to set themselves up over tribes of people. Now, what's the problem here? Um, the problem would be that they're grabbing daughters of men, any whom they choose. So they're, they're, they're gathering these huge harems of women for themselves and depriving people of chances to marry, perhaps. Or there's something that's much more well-known in the ancient world and even goes back as far as this date. Uh, is called the right of the first night. And that's where the king claimed right to a woman on her marriage night. So that before the husband could be with his wife, the king got first dibs as right of law. And it was believed to be an ancient fertility right. That if the king got to have the first go with a virgin, then it would bless the fruitfulness of their land and their people everywhere. So the sons of God would interfere with the daughters of men and get to choose any whom they want. It doesn't mean they would steal them from the man. Just they would have the first night and then it could be the husband's girl. Um, obviously there's problems with that. Like, God would not be down with that. And that could also be why God would be upset with what is going on. Um, The downfall with this interpretation is, how does that explain the Nephilim or the giants that are birthed out of this? You would think that you would just have natural human children as a result of a human king and a human woman getting together. You could, you could make it say, well, these are metaphorical giants, right? They're just monsters who think they, hey, they could do whatever they want because I'm like the son's boy or whatever, uh, the king's boy. And I don't know how you'd go around that one. So there you go, unsolvable. It keeps going. All we know, though, is this. God made a creation. And we've seen now in multiple ways that what was created is now decreated. It's breaking down under human rulership. Teledot number three, chapter six, verse nine. So Genesis shifts gears now. We ended with hope in Noah. We saw the problem. Now this is a story about grace and God working with Noah. So these are the generations, or this is the story of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What a breath of fresh air, right? While well, all that's going on with the sons of God and daughters of men and the monsters on the land, Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who complained that Noah wouldn't let them mingle with the sons of God and daughters of men. Probably. Probably. <laughs> All right, so verse 11, we have another summary of the problems that are going on. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And so God then comes to Noah and says, Noah, hey, I am going to flood the world. It's gotten that bad. I'm just going to wipe it all clean with water, kind of wash the stain out. I need you to build a boat. A boat big enough for you, your sons, and their wives. So these are grown children whom he's going to make, leave their, you know, their societies and move. Uh, and big enough for the animals. You're going to save creation. I might have to punish sinners, but I'm not wiping clean my creation. That's still good. So he builds this boat. Of course... We've all thought about the story. We've heard many sermons on it, like people mocking Noah. What's he doing? How's he getting the resources? He could have been a king of a city. He could have had resources. Maybe there's other people that believe in God and they're joining Noah to kind of make this project happen. But whatever it is, Noah gets the boat done and the animals come to him. And if you look at 6 verse 22, it says that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Because Noah was obedient to because he acted, as Hebrews 11 tells us, he acts in faith to a word God gives him that he doesn't quite see or get yet. He acts in faith that. He obeys God. He trusts God. God rewards him. So Noah did this, and then chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. Noah can't go into the ark if he doesn't build the ark, if he doesn't trust God. So God rewards his trust and says, come into the ark. So, God then says, in seven days, come into the ark. In seven days from now, water is going to pour from the heavens and from under the ground and flood the world. Why not right now? Seven days of grace, seven days of God's patience, seven days of letting all who wanted to come into the open door of the ark come into the ark. That's our God. The door waiting open. Seven last days, people. Come on. You didn't believe it when you saw the boat being built. It's built. Are you going to come in? No, it was a mere 600 years when it finished. Um, after the seven days, the waters came on the earth. And it says that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And eventually, the waters cover even the mountains. Verse 17 of chapter 7. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Uh, Cuba is roughly three feet ish. Ac- actually, it's a, a roughly a, a foot and a half. Um, and all flesh died that moved on the earth birds, livestock, beasts, swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds. The heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Of course, today we have a lot of people that say there was no flood, yet there's um, several societies around the world that have flood myths in their ancient legends, which, so did they all kind of just make this up on their own? Or is this like based upon some event that all ancient people witnessed? It's probably the latter. That There was a flood. Is the flood universal or local? That's a big debate. Did it just kind of flood the area of Noah's time? Or did it flood the whole world? Well, you say, well, it covered the highest mountain by 15 cubits. Ah, the, it was the whole world. Um, however, we don't know what the geography looked like. Was... Mount Everest, the highest mountain back then? I mean, mountains are moving things thousands of years? Was it the highest? Was it as high as it is now? Did the flood itself with the waters coming out of the earth break up things? And did it actually change the geographical landscape when the water subsided? Did that change the way the earth looked? Were the continents at one time all together and then they got separated because of the flood? Like there's a lot of questions we don't know the answers to. So when it says that it covered the highest mountains, that doesn't need to mean that it was 30,000 feet deep. We don't know. We just know that it says it covered whatever was the highest peak at that time was covered. So 150 days, the water sits there. in verse eight, or chapter eight, verse one, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. So 150 days go by, and slowly it resides. Then, verse, uh, and then the ark um, it, it continues to to subside. The waters subside till the tops of mountains are seen. Then in verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent out a raven. The ark by this time had rested on one of the mountains. 40 days go by, it sends out a raven. The raven doesn't come back. Then he sent, verse 8, a dove from him to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. The dove found no place and came back. So the ravens out there, he probably landed on rotting corpses somewhere and is feasting away. The dove doesn't do that thing, so the dove comes back. There's no land for him. Um, so he brought her back in. Verse 10, he waited another seven days, and again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, but this time in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Freshly plucked. So this isn't some like floating twig from the old world. Here you go. No, no, freshly plucked. There's green leaf on this, maybe even a little golden olive just hanging there. In other words, this dove plucked it off of a newly grown tree. Somewhere out there, there's a new land with new trees. There's a new world. And the dove brings promise of that world that Noah cannot see back to him. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove again. This is verse 12. And she did not return to him anymore. Now there's enough land. The dove just found a home. So Noah finally realizes we can come out of the ark. God invites him out. In verse 15, he says, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds, animals, the things that creep, and be fruitful and multiply. Who did he say that to last? Adam. Noah, now your turn. Be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Noah builds builds an altar to God. So he sacrifices one of the animals, like the sacrificial animals he brought extra of to do this very thing. Uh, The aroma, the Lord smells and it pleases him. And he says this in verse 21. When he smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, you know what? I understand that humans are dust, as the psalm says. I understand they're going to sin. Neither will I ever again strike down every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And so it hasn't ceased ever since. So then in chapter 9, it comes to a close. Um, Chapter nine, verse one. God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth." Once again, the fear of animals will be upon you, so you're going to have some sort of rulership over them. They're going to be afraid of you, but it's not quite the same because rather than obeying you, they're just thinking afraid of you. You know that you run into a, a squirrel. Where do they go? Away, as they are, and you want to pet them. I know, not very cute, really. Um says, everything that moves shall be food for you, verse 3. So now apparently animals are, you can only guess that before everyone's a vegetarian, now they can eat meat, it seems. It seems hard to believe that that was the case, but it, it, it appears to be that way in verse 3. Um, you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is the blood. So you've got to properly cook your food. Then he says in verse six, whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed for God made him in his own image. So here the image of God hasn't ceased. No and his offspring are still made in the image of God, which we learned about Adam meant you're, you're going to be a representative of God on the earth. So no one, his sons are supposed to represent God on the earth to the creation. And you be fruitful and multiply team on the earth and multiply in it. So the same commissions are given, go rule the thing and multiply. Then something odd happens in verse 9. Behold, God says, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring and every living creature. And he names all the creatures. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. Verse 17, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Seven times the word covenant comes up. First time this word is used in the Bible. Covenant, 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 covenant. God's entering into a relationship with these humans, a new kind of relationship. Then in verse 18, um, our story was hopeful, and it disappoints. So The sons of Noah come out. They begin to live their life. Noah becomes a man of the soil in verse 20. He plants a vineyard, figures out, hey, if I leave these grapes in this enclosure in a damp cave for a long enough time, it's really potent after a while. He takes a few sips, gets a little tipsy, passes out in his tent, Um, Somewhere along the way, he lost his clothing. Kind of, I guess it happens when you're under the influence of something else. And uh, he passes out. And well, one of his sons sees him, uh, Ham by name, and says, "Oh my lordy, this is a perfect opportunity to make fun of old dad." Snaps an Instagram photo of him, publishes it. Um, Noah finds out from all the comments that his phone's notifying him of, and he's really upset. But meanwhile, uh, the other sons, Shem and Japheth, walk in backward to cover their father. so They would no longer be embarrassed. Well, Noah wakes up and finds out, as he does. The internet, nothing disappears on the internet. And he curses Ham. He doesn't actually curse Ham. He curses his grandchildren. Like, that's how deep this goes. Like, Ham is already a lost cause. Let me just curse the rest of his offspring forever. So he wakes up. This is the first word spoken by a human after the flood. Like the world's clean, right? Yeah. Verse 25. Cursed be Canaan. That's, his, that's Ham's grandson. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Then he said, on a better note, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May the Lord enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be a servant. So Canaan's just cursed. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. The days of Noah 950 years, and he died. Canaan, by the way, becomes the people of the land of Canaan, whom Israel moves into and beats up and takes the land and has the promised land. That's for another time down the road. But now you see the development of that story. Well, there you go. The flood. Okay, so. I walk away from this, and I... Simplify the story in a few ways, it goes like this. Creation is unbearably decreated, so God has to wipe it out. I recall pictures of myself as a kid wearing white overalls. I was maybe two, three or four. The moms already know what is wrong with this. Um so, you know, kids get dirty. It all messy, put it in the wash, clean, maybe a little bleach, clean, put it back on the kid. Did you really expect it to stay clean? So God sees this problem, and in a sense, he cleans it. But was the problem that the Earth needed cleansing with water, or was the problem that the human hearts were sick inside? Kids are prone to be dirty. Humans are prone to sin. So we are quickly disappointed. We see everything's wiped clean. There's a new world. Noah enters into it. God's talking to him like he's Adam 2.0. Go now and do what Adam didn't do. So he does. He begins to garden and harvest, and there's grapes, but he messes up. Rather than having dominion over the grape, the grape has dominion over him which we have already earlier defined as sin when the creation has dominion over us. So Noah has now sinned. Um, And then he starts to curse his grandchildren. And that's how our third Teladoc closes. Like, whoo! What just happened? We thought it was going to be good because when the flood happens, so we see that creation is unbearably decreated and it gives us hope. We have hope that there's a new creation coming. And that's not for no reason. The story is leading you to believe it's going to happen. I want to point out a couple things to you. First, we've already said Noah's dealt with like he's the new Adam. He's Adam 2.0. God talks to him in that way. Um, he rescues the animals. Adam was given authority over the animals. Noah has authority over the animals as he brings them into the ark. And he has rule over them. Uh, the waters, if you'll notice, in the flood, what happens is they go up like this and cover the land. Well, if you go back to Genesis 1, this is actually what happened in reverse. We saw in 1 verse 2 that the waters covered the surface of the deep. And on day 3, we see that the waters recede and dry land comes out of it. So what happens in creation is there's water everywhere. It recedes to expose land. God makes a creation. Well, in the flood, that same water now goes back upward and covers up everything. So we're going backward in the narrative of creation to the beginning. Then, do you remember what was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1? The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Two things. Hovering is, in the Hebrew, it's the verbiage of a bird who, who, who's sheltering young. We have a dove that Adam sends, uh, Noah sends out over the waters. But more than that, in 8 verse 1... The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Remember the word spirit is ruach, which is spirit, breath, wind. That's what ruach means in Hebrews, all three of those. And when we read in chapter 8, verse 1, the waters are covering everything once again. 8, verse 1 says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a ruach to blow over The earth and the waters subsided. This is creation all over again. The same pattern is happening. Ruach over the waters, and now they're subsiding, and the earth is appearing. Dry land is appearing. We also see um, the olive branch in 8 verse 6 when the dove brings back the olive branch. This is that token, hey, the first creation was wiped away, but there's a new creation out there, and the dove is bringing the promise of it. So we're we're seeing this flood, and we're having hope. All these hints are saying it's going to start over, and this time Noah is going to do what Adam didn't do. He's going to obey God. And then finally, as we've already hit on, he comes out of the ark, and God starts talking to him like he's Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, you know, and rule over it. Go, do it. And we're like, yeah, go get him, Noah. And immediately, Noah fails. Great, is there any hope? So that's the story of the flood in a nutshell. Creation's unbearably decreated. So God sends a flood that anticipates a recreation It happens, and then we're quickly disappointed because the recreation is decreated yet again. So we're back to square one all over again. So um, we read this, and we are left with a couple of questions, right? Like, who is this God? Is he cruel, or is he kind? Is he furious, or is he friendly? Can't stand humans. Look how bad they are. I regret I made them. I'm going to wipe them all out. Fine, you Noah, you can stay. How it appears, and of course, people who don't know God personally look at a passage like this and say, wicked, wicked, wicked. Really? Everybody deserved death except one man in his family? He even wasn't really that good. He really deserved to be saved. Oh, of course he didn't. But So here's what I did this week. Um, I grew up hearing, in Bible college, I heard about the Gilgamesh epic. It's one of the ancient stories from Babylon that has a flood story in it. And like, okay, well, maybe I'll actually read it someday. So I, I did that this week. I read the Gilgamesh epic uh, just to kind of see what, what does it take, what, how does it describe the flood and what's going on in that. And It's a really interesting story, really good, actually. Oh, well, I mean, if you like that sort of thing, you probably... Which is probably only a few of you nerds. Um, so, it was interesting. Uh, Gilgamesh is a king, and it, it, he's like two-thirds god and one-third man, and he's going through life, and it's, it's about his heroic efforts, and I thought the whole thing was a flood story. It's not at all. Apparently I had a, there's eleven tablets, and so it's the eleventh tablet where the flood is. So apparently I only had to read the last one. I said I read it all, but whatever. So, he's going through all this, I'm waiting for it, and, um, He's basically, towards the end, he's afraid of death. And so he begins to seek, how do I become immortal? So he finds out that there is a man who who escaped death. He was immortal. So he goes and seeks him out. And he finds him and he asks him, hey, how did you escape death? So this guy who is immortal, um, his name is very hard to pronounce. It's uh, (laughs) Atnapishtim. I'm not repeating that. So uh, he finds him. He says... So Gilgamesh says, "Tell me, how is it that you, a mortal, overcame death and joined the assembly of the gods and were granted eternal life?" And uh replies with, "I will tell you a mystery, a secret of the gods." And he launches into this story, and it's the story, the Babylonian version of the flood. And so he um, explains that I was a king once upon a time, and the gods decided to flood the world. It doesn't say why in this one, but in other Babylonian texts, it's because the humans are too noisy, aren't they disturbing? They're disturbing the rest of the gods, and the gods are tired of them. So the gods get in together in the uh, Gilgamesh epic. They get together, and they have a council. What shall we do with the humans? Let's do a flood. So they, they get the flood. But it says this. Uh, they, the five gods decided that they were to take an oath to keep the plan secret. We're going to flood the world, but... T- Anybody. Well, one of the gods, Ea, finds Etip- <laughs> and <laughs> he he breaks the oath. He leaks the secret out. And he tells them, hey, there's gonna be a flood. So destroy your house and use its timbers to build a huge boat, and the boat's described to be a cube. Uh, it's probably a, a big a big pyramid, and they're going to bring all the animals and all his servants and all the gold and all the talented people in the world onto this thing, and the flood then happens for seven days. And it's done. Seven days. Comes and goes. Well, guess what happens? The chief god, Enlil, when the flood's done, um, he's walking about the earth with his newly, you know, all the humans have been deleted, finally get to have fun, and then he sees, up, and he's enraged. Who is this and all these people? There's humans. We got rid of them. And Ai had to confess, well, I told him what you were doing, so I saved him. And so the gods are now angry with each other. And so they had to settle this thing out by saying, well, now you have to decide what to do with this human who survived your plan to kill the humans. And so they decide to make this guy and his wife gods. So that's the story of how this guy becomes immortal and becomes a god. Okay, you're like, well, that's interesting. Um, but there's a couple interesting things in this. And that is um, when Utnapresham is making his ship, and he's supposed to say, what am I supposed to tell people I'm doing? The God who leaked the secret to him said, you're supposed to tell people that Enlil, the chief God, hates you. And then, um, remember when Enlil sees that he survived the flood, he's enraged. And this is what he says. It says in the text, When he saw the ship, he was angry, and he raged at the other gods and and yelled, Who helped these humans escape? Wasn't the flood supposed to destroy them all? So then they have that little conflict, and they decide to make them into gods. So that is his story to Gilgamesh of how I became immortal. Okay. What does this have to do with anything? Well, is our god... Kind or cruel, is he friendly or furious? Now, we get so used to our story in the Bible that we kind of take a lot for granted. So what I gleaned very beneficially from reading a pagan text about the flood is I realized how their gods are depicted and how our God is depicted. And suddenly, it really lifted a much better God out of the Bible than I had originally saw because we take so much for granted. So three things about who is this God that would flood the world. Three things. First, He is a God who reveals his plan to humans. Remember the gods in the Gilgamesh epic said, they made an oath, don't tell the humans what we're going to do to them. But God comes to Noah and says, Noah, this is what I'm going to do. So God has always revealed his plan to humans so that we can either get on board, no pun intended, or not get on board. In the Gilgamesh, they had no choice. But in the Bible... God invites us into his plan. Number two, we have a God who is motivated by justice for creation. Why does he flood the world? It's not because he's tired of humans. It's because he's tired of his creation being decreated. What we see in the Gilgamesh epic, or at least in the other Babylonian texts, is that the gods were upset that the humans were ruining their rest. They're selfishly motivated to destroy the world, but God is not selfishly motivated. He is protecting that which He's created. This is called justice. Number three: our God seeks relationship. That's why I belabored reading that word "covenant" seven times. In the Gilgamesh epic, the gods see the humans after the flood and say, "What?" And you know, they want to imagine throwing things around. Who is this? How do he live? Get rid of him somehow. That's they just want to get rid of humans. But in the Bible, God wanted to save Noah and then pursues a relationship with him in the form of a covenant, which is a really fancy word to basically say a royal bond, a royal bond sealed in blood, a royal bond sealed in blood. Royal because it's a king calling to a people that depend upon him. A bond because there's something happening in the relationship. The king is uniting himself to this people and it's sealed in blood to show that it's serious and it's legal. That's a covenant. It's not just a friendship or relationship, but one that has serious magnitude. That God has pursued that with us. That is... Our God, not antagonistic with us, but pursuing us and wanting us. So who is our God? He reveals his plan to us and invites us into it. He is motivated by justice, and he establishes relationship with his humans. So for us who have the fortunate event of not living through the flood... Um, today, we live in a world of decreation where humans are ruling without God and we're not doing a good job with everything. We see famine, we see murders, we see social injustice, we see uh, inequality in wages, there's super rich and there's really poor and there's people going hungry and there's wars and there's manipulation in other worlds where governments are not set up very well, the rulers are there just to get everything for themselves. Like we see a lot of decreation. So what it meant for Noah to be in the ark is what it means for you and I to be in Christ. We're being transferred from a world that's dying and we're moving to a world that's alive. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that Noah and his sons were in the boat and it was a type of baptism. That's what our baptism is. We're moving from one world, the old world, to the new world. Be in Christ. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians Five seventeen you become a new creation. the old is gone it 's washed away in the waters in the floods of baptism behold you 're becoming a new creature. The holy Spirit Paul says in chapter ephesians one verses uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. He says that the Holy Spirit is given to you as a down payment of that which is to come, of your inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the dove who is bringing the olive branch of the world to come to the believer. That world that we cannot see from our side of the boat, the Holy Spirit saying, But it's coming, hang in there, keep going. You're inheriting the new world. That is what we have. The boat may not be fun. It might get rocked a bit. It might stink. There might be a lot of obnoxious animals around you. They might have to deal with each other's mess. But there were two birds released. The raven got his chance to leave and never came back because he found death to feast upon. He wanted the old world. The dove went out and saw nothing here for me and came back and waited till the new world was there. And so we can ask ourselves as we go to communion, which bird are you? It can be hard, I get it. It can be hard to be in the boat. It can be hard to sit around with Christians who smell and bug you. And I can't imagine what it was like to be a rabbit amongst cheetahs on that boat, but you know. We all go through something like that. We have those relationships. But hang in there because the new world's coming. And by the way, as a worship team, you can come up. You may know someone who left the boat. Be patient with them because they might come to the conclusion that feasting on death is not for them and they might come back. Not all who leave the boat as a raven. The dove comes back.